Grab your Bibles. We're jumping right in because we got lots of work to do. Go to the end of John chapter 9. The end of John chapter 9. Last Sunday we wrapped up this story, this marvelous account that John gives us of Jesus restoring the sight of a man born blind, something that had never happened anywhere in the Old Testament nor in the New. A man born blind received his sight, and Jesus did it in a very unusual way, right? With spit, with mud, and with the waters of the pool of Siloam. And we dug into the details of how, in response to that, the Pharisees conducted this three-part investigation or interrogation, if you will, and in their anger and their rage, how they drove this, this man, they put him out of the synagogue because they were so bent on, on, on disproving this miracle and on condemning Jesus for working on the Sabbath that it drove them into a rage. And so the story ends, the man is put out of the synagogue, and yet then Jesus seeks him out, right? Jesus takes the initiative, seeks this man out later, introduces himself as the messianic son of man. And we see this, this healed man, this formerly blind man, believe in Jesus and worship him. It's an amazing story of both courage and conversion. But then we read these very ominous words at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 39. And Jesus said, and he's saying this now in the, within the earshot of the Pharisees, he says, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, and listen to the sarcasm, we're not blind too, are we? Man, can you imagine Jesus looking at them? And he says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin and your guilt remains. Wow. What a moment, right? There's so many moments in the New Testament where you go, if I could be a fly on the wall and see the faces and hear the tone of this conversation, wow, what a moment. So we filed this under the banner of, first of all, God is opposed to the proud, right? To the ones who claim to see, they will grow darker in their understanding. And the corollary is, but he gives grace to the humble. For those who realize that they're blind, the ones who are in desperate need, to those people, Jesus opens their spiritual eyes. Amazing stuff. Now, we turn over to John chapter 10. We're going to look at these first 10 verses this morning. Remember now, okay, just a, a little important information. The chapter divisions that we have in the Bible are not original to the text. Okay, we know that. They were added into the Vulgate Bible some 1,200 years after the originals were written, okay, by European scholars, okay? So we don't look to the chapter divisions to tell us that there's been a change in the context of what's going on here. What we look for are written markers in the text themselves. We look for phrases, like John's favorite phrase is, after these things. That's the way he tells us that some time has passed. But we don't see that here between chapter 9 and chapter 10. We don't see that phrase. We don't see any indication that time has passed. So what we're about to read follows right on the heels of this conversation, this tense conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees about blindness. So we got to know who he's talking to, right? It's so important to know who is the audience as he talks about what we're going to see as sheep and shepherds. So look at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, and by the way, there's another bit of evidence that there is no historical change here. Okay, When John uses that, quotes Jesus and says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's never used where there's a change in scenery. What it is, truly, truly means I'm about to build on what I just said. Okay, so again, we're about to read what happens right after Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who are claiming to see. Truly, truly, I say to you, Pharisees, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. What do you think they were thinking as they heard that? Key phrases there to underline or highlight, the door and the fold. Okay, verse 2. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. More key phrases to underline, shepherd and doorkeeper. We'll come back to these. 
Verse 4, when he puts forth, or better, a better translation is, when he brings out all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee or run away from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Awkward phraseology there in the New American Standard. They didn't get it. That's the short way of saying that. Now, who's the they there? Who's they that didn't understand? It's the same Pharisees mentioned at the end of chapter 9, the men who were listening in on Jesus' conversation. Now, they hear Jesus speak, and they hear this language of sheep and shepherds and all this stuff, but they don't understand what he's driving at. Now, here's something interesting to know about the Gospel of John. John does not record any of Jesus' famous parables in his gospel. If you want to read the parables, go to the other three, the synoptics, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They record many of them, okay? Why? Well, after decades, John picks up his pen, I guess, to write the gospel of John down, and he decides, apparently, that it's not important to to rehash all of that parabolic material that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have put down. And on the flip side, because none of them recorded this exchange with the Pharisees, John sees fit, again, all of this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write this story down for us. Here's why that matters. Scholars and linguists have looked at these first 18 verses in John 10 and said this is the closest thing that John gives us to a parable. It's the closest thing. In fact, if you look back at verse 6, you'll see John doesn't use the Greek word for parable here. He uses another Greek word that is accurately described figure of speech or figurative saying. What does that mean? Well, it's technically not a parable, but it's not to be taken literally either. What he's doing is drawing this extended word picture for his audience to hear, to communicate a series of ideas that require insight, require wisdom to understand, right? But these guys don't get it. Now, why do that to the Pharisees? Sometimes we ask this question, why not just be super clear so they know what's going on here? It's because they have claimed to be the teachers of Israel. It's because they claim to see that Jesus is now going to confuse them. It's as if Jesus says, oh, you see, do you? Okay, well, I'll draw a word picture for you and you tell me what you see. He's testing them to to see if they can prove that they really have spiritual sight. But then John tells us they don't get it, which proves the opposite. It proves that they are spiritually blind. That's what's happening here. Seen this before if you go back in your mind to chapter 6. Remember how Jesus called himself the bread of life, and everybody went, How can you say that? Right? And they grumbled against him. And so Jesus pushed a little bit further and he said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my in my drinks my blood abides in me. And them double gasp, right? And they pull back in horror. And so that's when Jesus said, See, gathers his disciples, see. This is why I've told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. They don't understand because they're blind. In other words, for those who are being drawn by the Father, who have eyes to see, things are going to become more clear as Jesus teaches. But for those who are willfully blind, and this is what we've seen right over the last couple weeks with the Pharisees, they don't believe because they don't want to believe. They're willfully blind. For those folks, Jesus is going to make it more difficult and more offensive so that they will continue in their blindness and therefore remain in their sin and their guilt. That's what's happening here, and it's wild, isn't it? So look at verse 7 now. Jesus just finished his first figure of speech. The Pharisees don't get it, and so he says, okay, let me try a new one. And this is an important thing to see, the difference between verse 6 and 7. Let me try a different one. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them or did not listen to them. I am the door, he says. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Have life to the full. So in the first word picture, Jesus identifies himself as the shepherd who goes into the sheepfold right, through the door, and now a second word picture where he identifies himself as the door itself. Now, a lot of people look at this and go, okay, well, which is it? <laughs> you know, which is it, right? Well, it depends upon whether you're blind or see. 
Okay, one group of people says, forget it, that makes no sense. The other group says, oh, interesting, tell me more. To the willfully blind, Jesus offers confusion. To those who are desperate and want to see, Jesus offers sight. Which group are you in? Now, before we dig into the depth of his teaching here, let's take a few moments to talk about a number of cultural issues that are sitting sort of in the background of this particular story. First, you have to understand that any discussion of sheep and shepherds, I know that makes no sense to 99% of us, right? Anybody here a farmer, ranch herder? Okay. Oh, we, Michaela. All right, good. Talk to Michaela after the service. No, it's very foreign to us, but this would have been so common for people in first century Israel. Many Israelites were sheep herders. And everywhere, whether you were in the outskirts of a big city or in some small little village, you would always find multiple flocks of sheep. In fact, even if you go today to Israel, you're going to see Bedouin shepherds. You can go today, especially go out towards Herodium, towards Bethlehem, and in the rolling hills of Judea, you will still see Bedouin shepherds out there with their flocks. And it amazes, it's just amazing to watch. You're like, nothing has changed over 2,000 years. They're out there. Shepherds now, for the most part, live outside with their flocks. They were and still are today on sort of the bottom rung of society's social ladder. A shepherd's job was what we would call today blue-collar work. They physically had to tend to every need for the sheep. They led them where they needed to go. They feed them. They shear them. They care for them if they get sick or hurt. They search after them when they get lost. And, of course, they always have to be vigilant to protect them from predators. So as Jesus speaks here, you have to understand that there is an element of class division happening as he speaks to the Pharisees about sheep and shepherds. Think about this. You've got, on the one hand, these poor, dirty, blue-collar shepherds, and they're very much distinct from the, the highly educated, finely dressed scribes and Pharisees who live comfortable lives. And so as he's talking to these men in their tassels and their phylacteries and their, their flowing robes, talk of dirty sheep and sleeping outside and fighting off predators, in the minds of the teachers of Israel, this was sort of below them. But here's the irony. These same men also, also relied upon sheep in their daily lives. They relied upon them for clothing and for food and definitely for sacrificial use. So it was beneath them, but at the same time, ironically, they needed them. Now, as, we're, as I'm preaching this morning, what's the date? February 13, 2022. It is not lost on me that something parallel is happening right now to the north of us in Canada. Anybody seen the news? You have governmental leaders, the comfortable elite of Canadian society, squaring off against blue-collar truckers. Who's going to flinch, right? Those in the government like to make proclamations from on high, and they expect to be obeyed. Why? Because of who they are, because of their, their status and their wealth and their power. Now, here's the irony. Canada's economy needs those truckers to move their goods each and every day, just as the scribes and Pharisees needed the shepherds to shepherd their sheep effectively. It's a very interesting thing. Guess what? Human nature hasn't changed much. The power dynamics of human society from 2,000 years ago, there are parallels even today. Now, as we know, you and I are referred to as sheep in the Bible. It doesn't always feel good, does it? Although that guy's kind of cute. It doesn't always feel good because sheep are, are, are pretty helpless animals. They are creatures of habit, and they... They have very poor survival instincts. They're prone to wander off, prone to get lost because they don't really pay attention to what's going on around them. At any moment, they could be very timid and then in the blink of an eye become very, very stubborn and ornery. They get spooked by almost everything and they're utterly defenseless against predators. Now, I don't say any of that to insult you and I, right? It's not, a, it's not an insult but you have to admit it's a pretty good description of fallen humanity. It's a pretty good word picture. The point, I believe, of God creating such animals and then using them as metaphors for us is simply this. Sheep need a shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd. They need a shepherd to survive. They need a shepherd to flourish. Sheep need somebody who will lead them and care for their needs and protect them from threats. And so collectively, we are the flock of God, and we have a Savior and a King who is called in Scripture the Good Shepherd, 
the great shepherd and the chief shepherd. And as he cares for his flock, he appoints men in every local church to serve as under shepherds. So all this language throughout the Bible, right? Under shepherds who will care and protect the flock under the authority of the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. That's what under shepherds do. Uh, And of course, we call these men elders or we call them pastors, synonymous terms. And they have this high calling of representing Christ in the care of the particular sheep that God has given to that particular local flock. This is the way God has designed it. And yes, the flock has a calling and a duty as well to joyfully receive the care of its shepherds and to follow their under-shepherds. The question for every elder in every local church is, am I willing, qualified, and committed to shepherding the flock that Christ has entrusted to me as an under-shepherd? That's a huge question. And we'll give an answer someday for how we did in that. And the question for every member of every local church is, am I willing to be shepherded? Am I willing to follow Christ under shepherds without grumbling? So there's challenge on both ends, right? Now, quick note about sheep pens. Ancient sheep pens or sheep folds, as the, the New American Standard calls it. There's two figures of speech that Jesus uses here in chapter 10 to describe sheep folds. And it's very important. If you can understand these 10 verses, you've got to know this distinction. First of all, In almost every Israelite village, for the sake of convenience, there was one common sheepfold that all of the shepherds in that town or village would use, sort of a a public co-op that's large enough and, and built sturdy, walled in with rocks that all of the shepherds would use for their flocks, okay? So every evening, the different shepherds from the village that knew each other, right, because they that was their home village and they shared this co-op sheep pen, they would bring all of their sheep in for the night, and there would be a single door on that sheepfold with a gate on it. Only one entrance. That's so important. There weren't multiple gates and doors so sheep could leak out. One single entrance for the sake of security. The shepherds in that village would then hire somebody that we call the doorkeeper so that they could go home and get rest. There would be a doorkeeper who would keep the watch throughout the night and protect the sheep from from robbers, protect the sheep from wolves or other predators. Then when the morning came, these shepherds would come back to the fold. The doorkeeper would recognize each shepherd, no strangers, would recognize each shepherd and open the gate to them. Then the shepherd would stand outside the gate and with his particular call, call out his particular sheep. Okay, that's important because there's a whole, a whole number of flocks in there, but the, each shepherd would call out his particular sheep. Sheep And knowing the voice of their shepherd, those particular sheep would come out of the fold and then the shepherd would lead them out into pasture for the day, then bring them back at night and that process would repeat each and every day. So again, sheep are creatures of habit. This was comforting to them to to be under the care of their shepherd and to know this is the process. Now the second type of pen, I'll give you a picture of an example of this, would be one that would be built out in the wilderness. And this one would be used whenever a shepherd decided not to bring the flock back in. For whatever reason, they would stay out in the pasture. So he would have to build a temporary makeshift corral, usually out of just sticks or something like that. Something smaller that he could just corral his sheep in, right? So there'd be no movable gate on this type of a, on this type of a, a fold. It would have an open entrance there. So guess what the shepherd had to do? He had to lie in that space. He would lie down in that space, and guess what? He became the door. Very important to understand that. The shepherd himself would lie down across the opening of the pen, and and the the sheep would sleep there, and and the guys in the doorway, he functions as the door himself. So these images help us to understand what Jesus is talking about. Again, in the first century, everybody understood what was going on when he used these word pictures. We have a little bit harder time. He implies first that he's a shepherd and then later says, I'm actually the door of the sheep. Now we'll figure out what that means as we go along. A couple other important notes first. The concept of the sheep knowing the voice of their shepherd is apparently a very real thing. Now I've never been a shepherd, never even spent time with sheep. I'm not sure I want to spend time with animal sheeps. You guys, that's great, right? (laughs) Um, But apparently it's a very real thing. Um, In fact, I read about an experiment that was conducted years ago. A Scottish Highlander, who himself was a shepherd in his own country, went to Israel to meet with some of his Bedouin counterparts. And this guy spent several weeks living in the Bedouin's tents, and he ate his food. He he did everything he could to try to, 
take on the atmosphere of the Bedouin uh, environment, to smell like the Bedouin shepherd. He learned Arabic commands. He started to wear the clothes of the shepherd, including a headcloth, which would cover his face so the sheep couldn't see his face. So he did this for three weeks. And then he went out one day to call out that Arab shepherd's sheep. And he used the same commands. He smelled the same. He looked the same. Not one sheep would pay attention to him. Because it wasn't about his smell or how he looked. It was about his voice. His voice. And so everything that Jesus says here lines up with reality. This idea that the sheep know the voice of their shepherd. It's very, very important. Second thing you should see here, and this should be obvious, is that any man who was not a legitimate shepherd in the fold would never go to the doorkeeper and say, I'm here to get my sheep. That would be ridiculous because the doorkeeper would say, I don't know you. Right? So what does he have to do? He has to climb in some other way. He has to sneak in. He would never dare present himself for access. So the doorkeeper would know, look, I don't know you, so you must be here for evil intent. So if a false shepherd like that wanted to gain access, he would have to find a way to climb over the fold, not by the door. So the principle is this. The true shepherd enters the sheepfold in a way that demonstrates that his claim to those sheep is legitimate. And that's very important to understand. Okay, so what's the obvious implication for the Pharisees? As they're hearing Jesus talk this way and draw this word picture, what is the implication? Well, they are the thieves and robbers. There's no mistaking it. The ones that Jesus is referring to in verse 1. These guys have gained access to God's flock, not by the door. The Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees have gained access to God's flock, but not by the door. They've climbed through in an illegitimate way. They're the New, Test, New Testament equivalents of, of what we read in our call to worship already this morning from Jeremiah 23, where God says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Now, it's much more much more aggressive in Ezekiel 34. If you want to bookmark a chapter that that, that tells you how God feels about false leaders, false preachers, false teachers, false shepherds. Ezekiel 34 is brutal. I'll read just a portion of it. Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you've not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. Listen to this. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I am against these shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them, and I will deliver my flock from their mouth. Whoo! God takes leadership among his people very very seriously. And we have to take it that seriously. Did you catch the list of indictments there? These false shepherds, these of Ezekiel, and now showing up among the Pharisees in the days of Christ. They are wickedly selfish and full of greed. They're the opposite of servants, the opposite of caregivers. They use the flock for their own personal gain, for their own personal ambition. When the sheep are sick or hurt or injured, they do nothing to restore their health. When the sheep get lost, these men show no compassion and no concern for them. They won't put themselves at risk to search for any single sheep that, that wanders away. Not only do these men not protect the sheep from wolves, they themselves are predators. Think about that. Not only do they not protect the sheep, they themselves are predators, dominating the flock with, with force and with severity, as if, as if someday they won't be held accountable by God. So it's not difficult to see that Jesus looks at the Pharisees in his day and says, you're exactly the type of shepherds that God condemned through Ezekiel. In fact, the story of the blind man that we just read in chapter 9 is a perfect case study of this. Think about this. Here's an Israelite. He's one of God's flock. He's under the care of the Pharisees. But do they rejoice at his healing? Not one bit. All they're concerned about is, has Jesus broken their traditions? 
It's not a stretch to say that they would prefer the man not be healed than be healed on the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? False shepherds. And when the healed man frustrated them with this testimony and called them out on their blindness, did they respond with humility and with care? Not at all. They flew into a rage. And they punished this man with force and severity. They put him out of the synagogue. These are shepherds. These are shepherds who use fear and intimidation to control people. And this is not a one-time event. We saw this back in chapter 5. Remember when Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda? No rejoicing over the fact that this man who couldn't walk for decades suddenly could walk. No rejoicing, no praising God, just condemnation of Jesus. Why? Because he's a threat to their power and authority. He's a threat to their control over the people. These are wicked shepherds. They're greedy. They're self-centered. They're arrogant. They're compassionless. They're predatory. And so it's no wonder that Jesus warns his followers. He warns them back then. He warns us today. These men come to you in sheep's clothing. They will try to fool you as if they're part of the flock. But inwardly, he says, they're what? Ravenous wolves. And we need to pay attention to that. So let's look at the true shepherd then. First in verses 1 to 6, and then we'll look at how he's the door in verses 7 to 10. If you legitimately belong somewhere... There is a proper place to enter. How many of you guys came through one of those doors? Good job. That's the expected way. That means you are welcome into this place, and we're glad you're here. If any of you dropped down through the ceiling, I'd be concerned right now. Right? You came in some other way. You found another way to circumvent our crack usher team. Thank you, Connor. Or you circumvented all of our members, and you slipped in in the back. I'd be concerned right now. I'd be saying, call somebody. Call, some, call campus security. So how did the religious leaders in Israel, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, how did they gain access to the fold historically? How did they gain these lofty positions where they could wear these fancy robes and, and appear all, you know, all pure and lovely? Well, through a combination of things. First of all, ambition, human ambition. Through a desire for status and privilege, through their family wealth through political and personal connections, and through formal study and education, which, by the way, can be a good thing. But hear me now, having formal education does not qualify one to be a shepherd over God's flock. We all, we all hear that? It's, it's helpful. It, it can be very good, but it doesn't qualify you to be a shepherd over God's flock. God has always intended that his people be led and fed and protected by those who come in through the legitimate intense way because the door is there for a reason now let's identify the meaning behind these key pieces in jesus's figure of speech we know that the pharisees came in through some other means let's look at some of these pieces first of all oops there's our guys darn i forgot to put our guys up okay i just keep using that picture because it it's just such a visual all right first of all the sheepfold that he's talking about here in verse one is best understood as israel Again, this is a figure, not necessarily a parable, but a figure of speech, okay? So there's, there's, a, there's a, a picture being drawn here. First of all, there it is. The fold is Israel. Remember, who did Jesus come to seek and to save? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. In his first coming, Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says that precisely in Matthew 15, 24. He sends out his Jewish disciples in Matthew 10, 6, with that very same mission, to seek and to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Does that mean that the Gentiles are of no concern to him? Not at all. In fact, next week, he's going to talk about Gentiles like me, which is very exciting. We'll get to that. But first, Jesus is identifying himself as the true shepherd of Israel, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, and the promised Davidic king. That's very important to understand. The sheepfold, first of all, is Israel. The door to that fold is best understood as his messianic credentials. Jesus enters through the door by way of who he is, by his credentials that identify him as the promised Messiah from the Hebrew Scriptures. Whose descendant will he be? From which tribe? Where would he be born? What are the circumstances of his arrival? What would he do? What miracles would he perform? How would he reveal Yahweh to his people? 
Jesus came in the predicted way. He came in the prophesied way. And so he enters through that door with his credentials intact. I am the promised Messiah. That's how we can know that he is the true shepherd of Israel, right? Because of who he is, because of his credentials. He came through the door. Now, there's a ton of controversy about the doorkeeper, so I gave you an emoji. I know. It was late when I put this together. Uh, who's the doorkeeper? In, I know, Adam's shaking his head. I'm sorry, man. Who's the doorkeeper? It may be as simple as saying it's Yahweh. It's, it's just Yahweh. He was the one guarding the door to the sheepfold, and then he opened the door to God the Son. That's entirely possible. There are some who argue that the doorkeeper is actually John the Baptist because he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the one who predicted and became the messenger, right? The messenger of, of the Christ who cried out to Israel, make straight the way of the Lord. Either way, I think, is a valid, is a valid position. But in summary, understand this now. So Jesus comes to Israel, God's sheepfold. He enters through the legitimate way by his credentials and by his identity, and therefore the door is open to him by the doorkeeper. Yahweh, John the Baptist, whichever you choose. I think both are legitimate. Does that make sense? So that sort of explains in verses 1 through 6 what's going on in terms of the word picture. Now, the beautiful end to it there, the figure of speech, is in verse 3 where it says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. Man, does it not blow you away that God knows your name? I mean, not that, but not, not just that, but everything about you, right? But he knows, he knows you personally, the God of the universe. It just, if you just stop and meditate on that, it will blow your mind that he calls you by name. Now, an ancient shepherd knew his sheep really well because he spent every waking moment with them. So he knew each individual sheep. We could look at a, a picture of sheep and go, I can't tell them apart. He could tell them apart. Every little detail. And it's true, I guess, Middle Eastern shepherds do name their sheep. But they knew them so well, everything about them, their temperament, their personalities, what they like, what they disliked, they would do all those things. How much more true would that be of Jesus, the true shepherd? And think about this, Simon Peter, the names, James and John and Andrew and Philip and Matthew and Mary of Magdala, calling them by name, right? To be followers of his, to be disciples of his. Think about how Jesus spends valuable time, okay? Again, the, God takes on flesh. He's got a limited window of time, right, to do his mission, yet he spends valuable time with individual people. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the lame man at Bethesda, the blind man outside the temple. Later, it's going to be Zacchaeus, right? And it's going to be Lazarus. And it's the thief on the cross. How, how Jesus takes the time to address individuals, not just big crowds, not just corporate groups of people, but individuals by name. That is still happening today. Jesus still addresses Glenn, right? And Michaela and Jason. People in this room by name because he knows you. He knows you so well. And so he enters through the door and he calls out his own. And this is the beauty of the sovereignty in this picture. His own, his own, his elect, each one who's been sovereignly marked out to be saved, that person, man or woman, will recognize the voice of their true shepherd and will come out and follow. So there's even sovereignty in the back of this picture. And then we see how he leads. And this is so beautiful because so many times in human history, we look at leaders and what we see are, are men and sometimes even women who lead from the back and they crack the whip over people. And they scream, get going, right? They're not willing to lead from the front. But the shepherd goes out before the flock. What a beautiful bit of mercy that is. He leads from the front. He shows us the way. He sets the example so that in all things we can look to him and say, see, everything that we are going to face in life, Jesus has faced. It's part of why God took on flesh, right? Think about that. That he would walk in our shoes, that he would experience everything that we feel, the things that we face, the pressures of life. He's walked in our shoes. He's faced dangers and pitfalls, temptation even. He's gone before us. So we can look to him in all things. It's beautiful, right? Our shepherd is not like your typical human leader. Beautiful. All right, let's look back now at the second figure of speech in verses 7 to 10. As I said earlier, here we have a shift in our minds when we get to verse 7. 
uh, to the wilderness to where the shepherd would take his sheep out for the night and create this makeshift enclosure to keep them safe. And I read this, I read this interesting anecdote in my studies this week. There was an author who was going to write a book on this, on this topic of shepherding. And he went out into the wilderness to do interviews with shepherds. And one guy said this. He said, the author told of meeting an Arab shepherd who showed him the fold where the sheep were led at night. And the author asked him, that's where you go at night? Like he was confused. Like he was in the middle of a pasture, this small you know, corral of sticks. And the shepherd said, yeah. And when the sheep are in there, they are perfectly safe. And the author thought, really? But there's no door, he said. And the shepherd said exactly what Jesus said. I'm the door. I'm the door. When the light's gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie in that open space and no sheep ever goes out but across my body. I love that. And no predator comes in unless it crosses my body. So I'm the door. And that's what Jesus is communicating here in this second part of the figure of speech. Not only am I the shepherd, but I'm the door as well. I am the door to the true flock of God. It's the same thing that he claims he'll claim later when he gets to John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Except by crossing across my body. He's talking about the path to God here. He's the door. He's the door to salvation. One entrance, one door. I'm the only path to God, the only entrance into God's kingdom. You must come across my body if you want to enter into the sheepfold. Beautiful. Now look at all the ways that the good shepherd provides for sheep in verse 9. He says, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be what? Saved. He'll be saved. That's the first way that he provides. Salvation. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Now, in the context of the sheep analogy, being saved refers to being protected, right? From the threat of predators and robbers. We're going to be, you'll be saved from wolves and thieves and things that want to kill you. Safe from every enemy that will seek to destroy you. Either by me, enter by me, Jesus says, and you will be forever safe. Isn't that comforting? But obviously, spiritually, there's an analogy here. He's talking in the bigger picture about spiritual salvation, being saved for all eternity, safe in the arms of your shepherd. I love the descriptive way that Peter describes this. Peter writes this. He says, by his wounds, Jesus' wounds, you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Beautiful picture. Then look at what Jesus says next in verse 9. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's a Jewish way of describing a life, not just of safety, but of freedom. To be able to go in and go out. See, in ancient days, if your city was under siege from a foreign army, you would have to hide behind the city walls. You'd be locked into the city walls and you could not go out until that threat was gone. But when there was peace in the land, you'd be free to come and go as you please, to go in and go out without any constraints, without any worry. Jesus brings safety, but also freedom to go in and out. It's important, but even more. Look at the end of verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. Abundantly. Salvation, freedom, abundant life. This is what our true shepherd does for us. Now, before we define abundant life, because that's tricky, first see the contrast there in that same verse that Jesus draws again. He's constantly coming back to this idea. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And folks, that is what the devil does. That is the work of the devil. It's what he seeks to do through false shepherds. Remember, behind every false shepherd who is leading people astray, there is a spiritual power who wishes to seek and to kill and destroy. The good shepherd, in contrast, seeks to grant a sheep not just life, but life to the full. Abundant life. It's interesting, one of the practical lessons that's come out of this COVID-9 pandemic is safety. How do we view safety? What's safe? Is that all that matters? Is just being safe? It's necessary, but there's more to life than just safety, isn't there? We learned this. We weren't just created to be safe. The human heart was made for infinitely more than just safety. What we want is what Jesus describes here, deep, abundant, overflowing life. Not to be huddled behind walls, safe, 
We want more than that. So the, the sheepfold in this figure of speech, understand it's good because it, it provides a measure of safety. That's good. But catch this, the sheep can't stay in there forever. In fact, if a sheep just stays in the sheepfold, it dies. It'll be safe from robbers and thieves, but it will die. It needs to get out. It needs a shepherd who will take it to green pastures and help it to lie beside still waters. Isn't that true? So we got to be careful about the way we see safety. We want the abundant life. So what is abundant life? Man, if I polled 10 Christians on the abundant life, I'd probably get 10 different answers. Let me tell you what it's not. We've been conditioned in modern-day America to immediately think of, I'm doing air quotes now for the recording, the good life, material possessions, things, stuff, time, all kinds of things, right? Finding that bigger home. Getting a hold of that truck of your dreams. Opening up your closet and seeing every bit of, you know, trendy clothing and jewelry you've ever wanted. That's the abundant life. Finding a place where you can, you can build on a big patch of land so that you can finally get away from all those pesky neighbors. Right? Having solid investments and a healthy savings account that will give you the financial margin so that you can do as you please in life. Having enough time and money to go on any vacation that you choose. To have the flexibility to take up any number of hobbies. Leisure. This is how we tend to define the abundant life. By the way, those things aren't necessarily bad, sinful. But if that's how you define the abundant life, then they become idols. And they do become sinful. And they do become destructive in your life. You become more of a capitalist than a Christian when you fall into that trap. The abundant life has everything to do with being in fellowship with God through faith in Christ alone. The abundant life has everything to do with having the hope of an eternity spent in his presence. The abundant life has everything to do with growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorifying him with your whole life is an act of worship. That is the abundant life. Take Paul as an example. How was Paul's bank account? Right? We, we laugh. Like, well, Paul didn't have a bank account. Stop it. He lived, he lived paycheck to paycheck, right? <laughs> Actually lived off alms and people who supported him. He wasn't rich in the things of this world. As far as I can tell, he took no luxury vacations. No big home. No fat bank account. He was content with two things, right? Food and covering. Food and covering. And he still enjoyed the abundant life that Christ offered. He was rich towards God, even in the midst of suffering. That's the amazing thing. Not only did he not have much, he suffered more than us, and yet he had an abundant life in Christ. So we got to process that through our capitalist American minds and start to redefine things. Like, what do I really, what's really important? If I get all those things that I want, what next? I want more. Suddenly that's not enough. Oh, well, I I left these problems and went over here. This is going to solve everything. Oops, there's just a different set of problems over there. It's about redefining the abundant life. The abundant life isn't necessarily a long life, by the way. It's not necessarily a comfortable life. It is a settled, satisfied life. The abundant life is a settled, satisfied life. It's a life of contentment where we are thankful for every little pleasure that we're granted under the sun because it's all grace. We deserve none of it. Much of it is found right here, by the way, among God's people in the local church. Much of the abundant life is found right here. Loving each other, serving each other, worshiping side by side, fellowshipping together, knitting our hearts together as a church family building long-lasting relationships, that is God's design for his sheep. That is the abundant life. It's The more we can reorient or rewire our minds to see things in those categories, the better the body is going to function, the more contentment and peace and joy we'll each find. Okay, enough preaching on that. That's a tough one, isn't it? All right, let's wrap this up. What do we take away from these 10 verses? I mean, really practically, what's the big lesson for us? A couple things jump out at me. First of all, I'm going to ask the question, are you a sheep in God's flock? 
That is absolutely foundational. Everything else pales in comparison. Are you a legitimate, true sheep in God's fold? That's where it starts. You've got to come to know the shepherd in the same way that formerly blind man did, who said, Lord, I believe, Lord, I trust, and worshiped him. You have to be there. You have to know and trust in the shepherd if you want to experience the power of him calling you by name, right? To see the beauty of how he leads the flock and provides for us. That's the first thing. If you are a part of God's flock, then consider the second question you see there. How do you know the voice of a stranger versus the voice of a true shepherd? How do you discern the difference? Don't take this lightly, by the way. One of the most common recurring themes in Scripture is warnings about false teachers. It is every, if you really start to pay attention, you will see it all over the place. False prophets, false teachers. It's a recurring theme. What do we see in both the Old and New Testaments? Listen, wicked priests and godless kings and false prophets and power-hungry Pharisees. Spiritual leaders in every generation, in every era, who are thieves and robbers of God's flock. Everywhere. And today isn't any different. I know we live in a bit of a bubble here at Masters, and, and it's, a, it's sometimes a really comfortable place to be. But out there in the big bad world, there are false shepherds everywhere. False teachers everywhere. So it's important for us to look inward to discern what's happening in the leadership of the church. To ask hard questions. Well, what is being taught? We have to be Bereans. We all have to take responsibility for this ourselves, right? Don't just trust me, by the way. You can ask me a question anytime you like. I welcome it. I love it. Be a Berean. Check it for yourself. What's being taught? What example is being set? Are we being led towards life or towards destruction? And sadly, when we look at church history, what we see is ministers who are aligned more with the devil than with the Spirit of God. In either knowingly or not, leading people to destruction. Serious question. Had there been more thieves and robbers over the past 2,000 years than true shepherds? What do you think? More thieves and robbers or true shepherds? Consider the 1,000 years of confusion coming out of Rome. It's a long time before the Reformation. Consider the vicious attacks against the Bible in the 200 plus years of the so-called Enlightenment period where people fell away in, in numbers we can't even fathom. It raises hard questions. How many men over the centuries have functioned as genuine caretakers of the flock, leading them through the door that's Christ, and how many men have done so much damage actually undermining the rightful place of Christ in his own church? How many men are standing up in a church today, this morning, dead men in false pulpits preaching a false message to dying people? It's rampant. It's everywhere. What about all the men who, in a technical sense, you say, well, they're sound in their doctrine, but they're leading their congregations for all the wrong reasons. Like the Pharisees, they're in it for themselves, for the sake of power, for the sake of control over people, because they want status and stardom and wealth. What they want to do is build their own little empire here on the earth. What about those men? What about people that will stumble and fall away when those men are outed as fake? How much damage do we do to the church? How many men are out there who not only don't know their sheep, they don't really care about their sheep because the sheep are a means to an end for them. It's everywhere. See, Satan's aim is to steal, kill, and destroy. We've got to be aware of this. He uses men and women as his agents. They pose as true believers, but they bring division and destruction to the church. We've got to be aware of that. They climb over the wall. They don't come through the door. They climb over the wall some other way, and they use their charm and their talent often to deceive people and to drive them towards death and not to life. Church history is full. I mean full of examples of this. Peter warned us, right? So this is why I'm warning you, because Peter did this in his day. Here's what he wrote. He said, false prophets arose among the people, speaking of the past, just as there will be false teachers among you, he says to the church, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Then listen to this. He says, many will follow their sensuality, many. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Is that not happening today? 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God will hold them accountable. But we still have to be Bereans. We still have to ask hard questions. So listen, here it is. The Lord's true flock will know the difference between a stranger and the voice of the true shepherd. How? Because they spend time in the pasture with him. Because they follow the true shepherd into pasture. They are constantly grazing in his word, both individually and corporately as a body. They are constantly grazing in the pasture and grazing and eating, feeding on the word that the shepherd brings. So that makes them familiar with the landscape. They're steeped in the core doctrines of the faith. They know what they believe and they know why they believe it and they can defend it. They know how to distinguish essential beliefs. Essential beliefs where if we compromise, it's fatal versus secondary beliefs where there's room for different preferences. The true sheep dig deeply into the relationship they have with their shepherd. They build an unshakable biblical worldview. They commit their time and energy to living life with fellow believers. And most of all, they persevere in that truth to the very last breath. They die in faith. That's when Christ calls them home. That's when their reward comes. And in the meantime, as they await that precious day, when thieves and robbers come to them with false words, with charm, with slickness, trying to seduce their hearts and to pull them away, the true sheep looks at him and says, nah, I recognize that. I recognize it. And they flee back to the true shepherd and to his people. That's what we need to do, right? Now, how did, did I just describe you in, in some way in that description? Where are you at on that spectrum in terms of your ability to discern the difference between the stranger and the true shepherd? Are there steps that you need to take to get better in that discernment? May we all have ears to hear this warning today. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we are so, 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 so thankful for having a true shepherd one we can count on, one that has saved us, one that has given us freedom, one that is in the process of giving us this abundance of life as we grow in the grace and knowledge of who he is as we continue our lives of worship. Lord, as we knit our hearts together in this local church, Lord, you're an amazing shepherd. And we, just, we get the privilege now to even sing more about you, Lord, and to, to worship your name as that man who was healed of his blindness. Lord, the scales, little by little, fall off our eyes, and we see Jesus, we see you for who you really are, and we want to worship you so much. Help us to do that well this morning. Thank you for this beautiful word picture that you have drawn for us, the sheep. Lord, we are privileged to be your flock. Help us to worship well now. We pray in your precious name. Amen.